Today's episode is such a good one. Let's get into it. Welcome to I Am All This, a podcast about what it means to take care of your whole self and show up fully present here, now. I'm your host, Kate Hurley, and before I introduce you to today's guest, I want to start by acknowledging the Black Lives Matter movement and the murder of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and thousands of others that we don't even know about. I stand with the Black community. I stand with those calling for justice and accountability, and I stand with you, our listeners here, who understand that white supremacy is nothing new, it's simply the status quo. As a white woman, I've learned from black leaders like Leila Saad and Rachel Ricketts that dismantling white supremacy starts with me looking in the mirror and seeing ways I might be causing harm and upholding systems of oppression. My promise to you is to continue to listen, learn, unlearn, and highlight the Black, Indigenous, and people of color teachers and thought leaders who inspire me here on the show. Okay, so today we are not talking about racial justice. We're talking about compassion, how to build better habits, and why incremental change is more effective than trying to overhaul your entire life all at once. I'm so excited to talk to you guys and share our conversation with our guest, Robin Downs. Robin is my dear friend. She's also the founder of the mission-driven media and education brand, Real Food Whole Life, She's the creator of the Feel Good Effect Mindset and Method and the author of the upcoming book, The Feel Good Effect. Robin has a master's degree in education with an emphasis in behavior change and four years of public policy and health change at the doctoral level. Her work taps into cutting-edge science around mindset, strategies, and habits, and how people create and sustain lasting wellness. Robin combines his professional research background with work as a certified yoga teacher specializing in mindfulness and self-compassion to share science-based, life-tested, radically simple solutions to help people feel good. Oh yeah, and she has a podcast called The Feel Good Effect, and she recently interviewed me on the show, so you can go back and listen to that interview too. But Before any further ado, here is Robin Downs. Robin, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Okay, I'm so happy to be here. Oh my gosh, you guys, Robin has this amazing podcast called The Feel Good Effect, and she just hit a million downloads this week. How does that feel, Robin? (laughs) Well, I always say that I am all about meaning over metrics, and I don't know. I mean, a million downloads to me is important only because... It shows that um, a, a podcast in a movement about redefining what it means to be healthy and about, you know, leaning out of health as, and wellness as another set of impossible standards and leaning into, you know, the science and ancient, ancient wisdom about what feels, what feeling good really means. And that you can have a show that's not about diet culture or wellness fads and still get to that number. Like that's what it means to me because it is a little bit of an uphill battle to talk about wellness in this way. Um, It's not as trendy. It's not as sexy. So that 1 million just shows that there are people that want a different way to well. And so that's what I'm really excited about versus like, Mm. you know, Numbers are numbers. Analytics are analytics. It can't control those things. (laughs) But just knowing that there's people who are behind and part of this is so meaningful to me. 
I love this, Robin, because what you're pointing to is just another way of defining success. Because at the end of the day, we don't have any control. All we can do is show up, do our best, and let go of the outcome. That pointer was shared with me last year, and it stayed with me. And you definitely do that every single day as a researcher and podcaster and author. So I want to back up, though, and you know, for people who aren't familiar with you, with your work, with the brand Real Food Whole Life, can you just give us a little bit of information about how you got here and what drove you to create this podcast and really movement and book? I mean, so many things. Um, how did you? How did you get here? What drove you? Oh. Yes, what did get me here? Well, I always like to introduce myself to you and your audience. I mean, not to you, Cakes. We're really BFFs in real life. But to your audience, I'm Robin (laughs) Conley Downs. Sometimes people think I'm saying Robin Calm Me Down. And I'm like, okay, I can get behind that one. But I am a mindset, habits, and routines expert and just a nerd when it comes to radically simplifying health. I am the author, like Kate said, of the upcoming book, The Feel Good Effect, and I really am just about wellness in real life. So my motto is that wellness does not have to be complicated, stressful, or time-consuming, and I really try to use simple, science-based, life-tested strategies to help people feel good. Like, all of my my brand is all about that. (sighs) What got me here? was really a struggle in my own life. Wellness was complicated, time-consuming, and stressful. And I would say the pursuit of wellness was making me feel worse. Um, I, in my 20s and early 30s, you know, kind of was really, really pushing to do all the things. I was in a a full-time doctoral program, public policy program. I was working a 60-hour week corporate-type job. I had a a newborn baby at home and I found myself at the very bottom of of the list and burned out, exhausted, beating myself up all the time, just basically miserable. And so I threw myself into what I thought was the solution of perfect wellness, working out an hour a day and four hour meal preps and, you know, all the things that you think you're supposed to do. And... I did it for a while and I had some great physical results, but I was exhausted and I couldn't sustain it. And so then I took my background kind of as in this um, policy program and in behavior change and working with my husband as well, who's a clinical psychologist, just like applied what we knew to the problem and said, "How how can we simplify this? How can we make this more grounded in research and how can we make it so that we are the ones that define what success means. And that created this whole thing, Real Food Whole Life, and all of the kind of uh, little projects underneath, including the podcast and the book and all kinds of other fun things. I love thinking back to when we first met because we were both in that spot. We were both in that place of like, oh my God, just tell me what to do. Yeah. 60 minute workout. Check. Okay. I'll like chop garlic and onions for hours and like do this fancy meal prep. Like, got it. Like, just give us the magic bullet. Like maybe if we do these things, then everything will be better. Mm. Yeah. I would say that I was doing it like it was my job and then it was a job. (laughs) (laughs) And I was really, I'm a, I have these different kind of, um, I call them feel good effect archetypes. So we did, we've done a bunch of research, my husband and I, on the biggest barriers to wellness, like what actually makes it hard because it, it's, it is hard in real life a lot of the time. And we came up with some very, very relevant blocks and a lot of them have to do with mindset. And we found that there's different types archetypes of people when it comes to thinking patterns and and blocks. And one of them is a dynamo, which is my style, which is like very much a perfectionist type A. If I just work harder, if I just push through, everything will be okay. And I was applying that mindset like to wellness as if 
I worked hard enough and did it just right, then I would feel really good. And of course, it had the opposite effect. And yes, I think we came, you came into my life right around that time. I'm a dynamo too. And <laughs> um, can you tell us about the other archetypes that I often, you know, have a hard time remembering because I just can't relate to them. But so many people listening, I think, will find themselves in one of these archetypes. So what are they? Sure, I'll run through them. And I, I do want to mention again, like we didn't just make this up. Uh, we did about 15 years of research. And what we found was that before habits and before routines or strategies, the biggest barrier for people is the w thought patterns. So mindset, the way we think influences our uh, actions and then our results. So if you want to change your results, you change your mindset. And it's, it's a, it's a way, it's an actionable thing that you can do. And but then when we dug deeper, we found that there were these categories. So the dynamos tend to be more perfectionistic in their thought patterns. And then there's antidotes to these as well. So I'll tell you, like, you're not stuck. This isn't define you. And it's not even a personality. It's really a, just a dominant thought pattern. So that's me for sure. <laughs> but the, one of the bigger categories actually is the seeker. And the seeker's biggest challenge is all or nothing thinking. So all in or all out. And that mindset of like, I've fallen off the wagon. I might as well just eat the pizza or I've taken a week off of exercise. I'm never going to get back to it. And then the third style or kind of type of thinking pattern, thought pattern um, is the cultivator. And the cultivator's biggest block is around comparison. So whether that's comparison to other people on the internet or even comparison to themselves at another age or another phase of life, that that comparison really keeps them stuck and from moving forward in the way that they would like. Okay. So now I think that I'm all of these people, not just one of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you're normal, Kate, and I want to tell all your listeners these are all, and in the research, we've also found that these are fundamental um, parts of cognition. So if you find that you have uh, sort of unrealistic standards, that's a normal part of human cognition. So it's not like you're doing something wrong or, or you're a flawed human. That's the way our brain was designed. And then you add marketing messages and other um, ways that we are conditioned and they become amplified. But there's nothing wrong with them. And in small amounts, perfectionist-based thinking is actually can be good, right? Like it can motivate you a little bit. It's when it goes over the line that it can get really, really difficult and keep us from what we want and where we want to go. But all of us have all three. Most of us tend to have one kind of dominant area that comes up the most. But yeah, for sure. I mean, I compare myself to myself all the time. <laughs> These aren't things that ever go away for me, but even the knowing has so much power. I love that you say the knowing has so much power because, you know, in the mindfulness and meditation traditions, like just becoming aware of something, just seeing it and letting it be there can help you be less stuck in it. It can help you become a little bit more free. Yeah. So how do you, what have you noticed about just people's ability to see these patterns and how that can lead to meaningful change? Well, I th exactly what you said. So the first step is mindfulness. Like you have to be able to pay attention on purpose to your thought patterns to even know, oh, oh yeah, that's a very, this is just an unrealistic standard that I have for myself right now. And so that's number one, I think a challenge for people when they're able to do that, it can be surprising like, oh, I'm really hard on myself all the time or, oh my gosh, I'm always comparing myself. But once you're able to recognize, then you can make those changes. So there's some really tactical ways to, to shift your mindset, whether it's related to perfectionist thought patterns or comparison-based thought patterns or all-or-nothing-based thought patterns. And they all come out of mindfulness. I mean, I always say I like to Trojan horse mindfulness 
for people because not everybody is interested in it at the beginning, but the benefits are so relevant to everyone that I don't even care how we get you there. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. So I'm all for you Trojan horsing us through this because (laughs) you and I are so aligned. I've learned so much from you or I'll tell you about a conversation or a teaching that I'm working on with my teacher and you'll be like, oh yeah, like that's in this research that I was reading about last week with Andrew. So um, backing up a little bit though, I just want to ask you about kind of the fact that these thought patterns, you said that we all have them and that they're not necessarily bad. Um, Can you speak to that a little bit more? Because I think so many times, especially in the way that this stuff is presented in mainstream culture, it's like we have been conditioned to believe that we're doing something wrong or that the mind shouldn't be thinking this way. But really, this is how we're designed to think. Yeah, that's such a great question. And it's something I'm most excited about with the work that we're doing here is, is to uncover in with well, the research has been there all along to uncover the fact that these are just inherently normal parts of cognition. And, and so fighting them is a pointless battle, right? So let's take, for example, all or nothing thinking. There is a time and a place where all or nothing thinking would have saved our lives. So let's say we lived in a more ancient time and someone ate a mushroom and died. It would be really beneficial for all of us as a community in our brains to develop thought pattern that says mushrooms are bad. Don't eat mushrooms, right? Because we're not we don't need to take a risk there. And that all or nothing kind of good or bad friend or foe would have evolved to help us. But now when we apply it to something like food, it's really, really challenging and doesn't get us where we want to go. And like a similar example with comparison, our brains have evolved to compare to learn. Think about a kid, how a child learns. A lot of how cognition occurs through in learning cognition occurs for children is by watching other kids, right? They look at them, they think, and then they do the same thing. So if you have these thoughts, comparison thoughts, all or nothing thoughts, you know, really high standards, that's not bad. You're not doing anything wrong. Those are natural. It's that when they kind of go over the line, like what I call toxic comparison, where they are keeping you stuck where they're keeping you from feeling good and where they're really not helping you anymore. That's where Mm. we can be aware and then we can shift. Beautiful. I love that, that even though we have a really strong, persistent thought pattern or we've internalized a belief that once we can see it, right, we, we, we're no longer stuck in it and we can actually begin to shift and change it or change our, or is it, it's not, maybe it's not changing the thought pattern exactly. It actually is. I like, so I come at it from a neuroscience perspective and really from a neuroscience perspective, it is, it is creating a new pathway in your brain. And so, yes, you have a thought pattern. It's a literal pattern in your brain and you can create a new pattern that, that, gets you a different action and a different result. How long does that take? You know, it's a pra- it's like really a practice. So it can happen in not a huge amount of time though. It's really about small commitments, small steps over time. But you can I mean you probably experienced it, right? Kate in your own practice. If you start meeting yourself for example, with self-compassion, it's not like you never have those thoughts or you never have a bad day, but your experience starts to shift and you take different action and you get different results pretty quickly. Totally. And in my experience, the thought pattern is still there. It's just no longer accompanied by that emotional sting of like, oh my God, like the anxiety or the fear, the feelings of not enough. It's like the emotional sting isn't as strong, 
even if the thought pattern is still there, but it allows me to shift out of it. Yeah. And we could get really deep in the weeds about brain, how brains work. And that's not the point. <laughs> no, no. And I'm not trying to challenge you in any way. I'm, I'm not, I don't, something. I don't look at things from a research perspective. And so I think it really adds a lot of value for people to hear that research. Like, yes, yeah. we can make these really incredible changes um, in our brains. And, and yes. we have that ability to evolve, which is so empowering. Well, let me give you a couple more examples, because we actually are talking about the same thing. That's the incredible thing about neuroscience and about a lot of fields of psychology that we're finding, not surprisingly, we are coming to the same conclusion as a lot of ancient teachings. So ancient teachings knew it all along. We're showing it through quote unquote science. But for some people, knowing that it knowing that it's science-based is a little bit easier for them to digest or I guess believe. So for better or for worse, the example I want to give though is two things. One, you mentioned the sting and there's actually some really good uh, research around perfectionism and how people who have perfectionist-based thought patterns actually feel it when they make a mistake, like actually have a physical reaction, like getting an electric shock. Um, oh my God, you're describing I don't know my if that life. Resonates. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, people listening, I promise this isn't my therapy session. (laughs) That's that's in the book. It's one of my favorite. When I read that, exactly, I I thought, oh, yes, I have felt the physical shock of making a mistake. And the thing is that when you make like a physical shock means that you don't want to do that again. So then you're spending all this time trying to avoid making mistakes, right? And then your mm-hmm. actions change because you're protecting yourself from yourself, right? That you're protecting yourself from trying to make this mistake. And Robin, is there is there research, sorry to interrupt you, but is there research that shows that when you are in that protection state that you're also like limiting your creativity in a major way? And oh, yeah. Bo- yeah productivity goes down, like risk taking goes down, well-being goes down, you know, these, all these negative effects, creativity for sure. But the number one cause of procrastination is perfectionism, that you don't want to make a mistake, or you might not frame it that way for yourself. You might be saying, well, I just don't have all the pieces of the puzzle, or I don't really know all the steps. It's like, yeah, what that means is you don't know how to do it exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> so the the cool thing, though, is that that's not a foregone conclusion. It's not a personality trait. And you can learn a different way, which actually does create different different thought patterns. And from a neuroscience perspective, you may have heard this before, but the term neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity just means that neurons that fire together wire together so if you have these thought patterns you've gotten really good at thinking them and they they literally go together but if you start working on other patterns through mindfulness for example you create different pathways in your brain and the old ones they might still be there but they get less effective because they're not practicing them anymore or not as much right we never probably will get rid of them but in that physical shock example, the antidote is self-compassion. So people who learn self-compassion, that physical like shock goes, starts to lessen because they start to meet the mistake with self-compassion. And it kind of soothes it enough to move through to maybe not procrastinate, you know, or maybe to create or whatever it is that you were being held back from. Wow. So self-compassion really is like medicine. Oh, yeah. Kate, if anything with my life, I hope to contribute just the profound effects of self-compassion from a science, you know, from, a, again, ancient, ancient teachings has known this for a long time. So this is not yeah. something we came up with in the West, but 
Western approach has been able to validate it scientifically and 100%. If, if, if I could just leave you with one thing is a self-compassion practice as part of mindfulness practice is like medicine. Absolutely. Well, I believe you. You are a walking example of this because, you know, you are always doing things that you don't know how to do. You are always taking risks anyway, even if you feel the fear. And I know that you are a perfectionist and you do like to know all of the steps and it never holds you back. So you are really living proof that this works. Yeah. And I just want to reiterate that I have those thoughts still. I just have a way through them. And and that is the difference. So it's not that I don't feel that resistance of perfectionist-based thought patterns. It's just that I they don't stop me and they're not as painful, I would say either anymore because I have a different way of thinking that I can employ. You know, that if you are kind of a more factual person, like they get results, it gets results for me, but it also allows the process to be more present and more joy and more, you know, pleasant in general. Like I'm not just constantly beating myself up and telling myself why it's not good enough. So Robin, something that you talk about online a lot on your podcast show on Instagram and in your book is just how to be gentle with yourself over perfect what does that look like in your in your everyday when it comes to like running your business and um you know being a mother and a partner like what are some practical ways you've integrated this into your life and how can we do that too yeah. So Gentle Over Perfect just came out of this work several years ago that being gentle with yourself really is about self-compassion and a way out of perfection. Um, and again, people have this notion of what gentle means, which I did too, which is that being gentle with yourself or self-compassionate it means that you're weak or uh, spoiled or that you're going to give up. And Gentle does not mean that you don't try or that you don't grow. Human, part of self-compassion sometimes is pushing out of your comfort zone. But putting it into practice into your life really honestly looks like asking yourself this simple question, which is what is the kindest choice I can make right now? And then you have to really dig into the question of what is kind mean. And I can't answer that for you. But I know that when you, especially if you, you know, have a mindfulness practice, have a meditation practice, those answers, if you are in touch with some inner wisdom, those answers come a little bit faster. So a lot of times, Kate, I get this question is, I want to work out more, but I often find myself laying on the couch how do I know if I'm being gentle or lazy? Mm. <laughs> and I say, that's a tactical example of being gentle. Then you ask yourself, what is the kindest choice I can make right now? Is laying on the couch, watching Netflix for the eighth day in a row, kind? It might be. You know, I just had surgery last November and I wanted to get back to working out, but and I could push myself. But the kindest choice was more rest, and that was hard. Mm -hmm. But then there came a point where I asked myself, what's the kindest choice? And the kindest choice was standing up and getting getting on a walk and moving my body again. So that's the way it looks in life for me is just constantly checking in and asking, what's the gentle, what is gentle here? What is the kind thing here? And like the three parts of self-compassion that really come out of, I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Kristen Neff, but she's done a lot of seminal research on self-compassion. And the three parts are mindfulness, common humanity. So knowing that to make a mistake is human. So a lot of times just 
activating the sense that like I'm not the only one struggling here. I'm not the only one that has this problem. I'm not the only one making this mistake. And that the mistake isn't a failure on my part. It's part of being a human being. Um, so those are that was a couple examples. I know I went a little all over the place, but the number one thing is say, what is the kindest choice? And be honest with yourself. I love those examples. And I think that that like backing up to being on the couch watching Netflix or moving your body and getting up. Like I get that question a lot too from people and um, to be able to, to answer those questions and to be kind to yourself, it requires a deep relationship with your body. It requires an ability to, you know, know what it means to be embodied. Yes. And it's, I mean, it's really a plug for like the Kate Early move and meditate method because, (laughs) because that's a lot of times how I've learned how to answer that question is through movement, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And to be clear, there's never one right, there's no right answer. It's a constant practice. That's the work, capital W, right? But in a plank, what's the kindest choice? Is it to sometimes for me, it's to just it is to push a little beyond what I think I can do. Absolutely. And we also need to have that inner strength and resilience. I don't think it really matters whether we can do plank or not. I mean, it's helpful to be able to carry your groceries and lift your luggage in the overhead bin on an airplane. Like all of that practical strength is important, but for me, what's most interesting about those moments of digging deeper and finding that physical strength is just knowing that it's there, that we can stay present and tap into that and we're still okay. Right. And and let's say you're holding like a warrior two and I ask, what is the kind choice for me? It might, it might be sinking lower because I am aware that I'm playing it. I'm just playing safe, right? at that moment like I could go lower and the reason I'm not is because I'm scared versus the fact that I can do it Mm. so you know it doesn't mean and so that at that point the kind choice is to take the risk and go lower in that posture not because I'm trying to like be a perfect yogi or something but because I will take the risk and maybe fail because that's the kind choice. I love that so much, Robin. I do have a question though for you about this self-compassion stuff. So I am familiar with Kristen Neff, Dr. Neff, because of your podcast. You guys, Robin has an amazing show with her that is definitely something worth your time. So definitely tune into that on the Feel Good Effect podcast. But my question for you, Robin, is A lot of times when I read this compassion research or, you know, I hear other people talk about it, it's so easy for me to be like, yes, 100%, like, yes, meet that with kindness. But then I can, I'm not able to grant that same compassion to myself. Like for me, I have a different set of rules. Do you ever feel like that happens for you? Well, again, in the the research, that's 100% true that we are far we have far more capacity for compassion for others than for ourselves. Wow. Which is surprising because sometimes you don't it doesn't seem like people have compassion for anyone, but <laughs> it's definitely been shown that compassion for others is far easier to access than compassion for ourselves. How do you think that we can use that and fuel it to help us increase our compassion for ourselves. Do you have any ideas about that? I do. So two things. Well, maybe three. One, no, just knowing, right? Knowing that this is, that you might be more compassionate for others than yourself is just the first step. But beyond that um, is to actively practice. So again, this is about shifting thought patterns actively practice what would you say to a friend what would you say to a loved one what would you say to a pet i mean the pet one is a stretch but i do th- i completely resonate can- with the pet oh yeah i know you do <laughs> what would you say to hobby and it might feel phony 
And it might feel woo and it might feel ridiculous and that's okay. Do it anyway. So if you find yourself in that moment where you're beating yourself up or inner critics going wild, literally say out loud, write it down, say it mentally to yourself. What If someone you loved was going through this, what would you say to them and say that to yourself? Brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. Well, I didn't come up with it, but that's what the research says. And and it's it might not – I just want to emphasize it might not feel normal to do that. It might feel – I like roll my eyes. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll be nice. Um, but, you know, if you feel – like Dr. Rick Hansen has a bunch of research about resilience and feeling it in your body. Feel what it would feel like to say that to a friend. Feel what it would feel like to have that compassion for hobby. And then feel what it would feel like that for that for yourself. And that's tra- it's transformative and it, it might not come easily, but that is definitely a way to flip the script. Your background in psychology on... is really coming through here with Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then I would say the other one is just back to that common humanity, knowing that you're not the only one and really feeling into that depending on what it is, if you're struggling with having self-compassion, like no matter what it is, you're not the only one going through it. And sometimes just knowing that you're part of a community of other people can make you feel more human. Your humanness can help with self-compassion if you're struggling with that as well. I'm so glad that you brought up the community of other people, which is what you've created with Real Food Whole Life, like tens of thousands of people who buy into this, who who know this to be the truth. And at the very beginning of our episode, Robin, when I asked you about the million downloads on your podcast, you said that it can be sometimes a little bit concerning or unnerving because you are doing health so radically different. Like you're not talking about the number on the scale. There are no before and after pictures. You're not focused on really anything that you can see in the mirror. What you're talking is mm-hmm. about is so much deeper than that. And it's a harder way to grow an audience. But I, it's, you know, people aren't dumb and it's got to be so exciting to see people want to be a part of this movement that you're creating. Well, it's it's the small wins because there are a lot of days I feel discouraged about it. <laughs> like if you even if you look at the top 10 wellness podcasts, most of the time there's like two or three that are maybe four, maybe five that are about specifically about weight loss, like how I lost 100 pounds and and or very specific types of diets. And th- so there are many days where I do feel discouraged about the industry in general and what is selling and why. Um, but at the on the other hand, at a, the truest sense of my core, my truth knows that this it, what I'm teaching is valuable and so necessary. So that keeps me going. And then yes, like having those small wins where I get a whatever it is, a million downloads or and more important to me is like the message that someone sends me that says I struggled with how I treated myself for years and after listening to your podcast, I have changed the way I think about myself. You know, just that's what I really care about and that keeps me going on a daily basis. Which what you're describing is exactly like your research. Like you're not looking to go on the Oprah show, although I think you should. I'll take it. Yeah, you should go on the Oprah show. (laughs) If anyone (laughs) listening has any kind of relationship with Oprah. But But it's the small stuff. (laughs) One person at a time. Yes. It's one life at a time. One life. If I did all of this, all these years, all this money invested – and it changed one person's life and they were like kinder to themselves. It's completely worth it to me. So how does this kind of bit by bit uh, approach 
what does that look like when you're trying to make big change? Because a lot of people who've been working with you have made huge changes. They just didn't make it all at once. So can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. Well, beyond the mindset part, which you talked about a lot today, um, it's, it is, it's shifting the mindset to know like it's all or nothing is not going to sustain, but it's also really accepting this idea that small shifts are what lead to big change. Because when you make small shifts, they are sustainable and maintainable, um, which is again, opposite of what a lot of this taught, a lot of what is taught in wellness and, and what is shown, but that, um, radical consistency comes with those small steps and without perfection. Um, so that means once you have are working on the mindset, it means adding in small habits as part of routines that allow you to be well in short amount of time, in short amounts of time, because I'm never going to ask somebody to spend you know, 20 hours a week on this, I don't have that kind of time. And I don't think you do either. And I really want to help dispel this myth that it has to take so much time and be so complicated. And that really, in really like 40 minutes a day spread out in five to 20 minute increments, uh, you can literally change your whole life. Okay, say that one more time. 40 minutes a day spread out into five to 10 increments can literally change your whole life. And this is backed by research. Yeah. And it's backed by people doing it. Five to five minute to 20 minute increments. And think about that. If you do a couple, like a morning and evening routine, five minutes, if you do 10 minutes of meal prep without it being this big chore and you do a 20 minute Kate Hurley move and meditate, you're at about four. That's, I just didn't do any math there, but you're close to 40 minutes. And the big question there is, do you feel good? Does it make you feel good? Does it bring you joy? Does it help you manage like mental health? And then can you maintain that? Because that, Kate, I just cannot say this enough. It doesn't matter what you can do in a short amount of time if you can't do that over the long term. But if you can do something in small increments for a long time, you will get the results that you want and you will feel good doing it. I am with you 100%. And I experienced this too, because I used to work out 60 minutes a day, come hell or high water. And now, honestly, like I mostly am around 20 to 35 minutes with my workouts. I lose interest. (laughs) But that's all I need. I feel like, yeah, I got it in. I got it done. So Right. And, you know, we've been so conditioned that it's about calories. And so we think, and if we're not doing like a HIIT workout for 60 minutes, we're not closing the ring on our watch. So it doesn't count. And if you love doing 60 minute workouts and you can fit that into your day, like every day and that works for you, then do that by all means do that. Or if that brings you joy. But if you find that when you are approaching it that way, you're all in and then all out. All I'm saying is there is another way that allows you to do it more days than you don't and to do it for a really long time. Something that I've learned from you, Robin, I have like two things that you've said to me over the years that come up almost on a daily basis. The first one is, is you said, don't build a castle that you don't want to live in, which I think is totally relevant here, right? Who wants to spend three hours on your health and wellness every day. Like maybe, again, maybe for some, but not my jam, not my castle. Yes. The people who are doing that, like all the love to people who are wellness influencers, but like people who are doing wellness for three to four hours a day, that actually is their job. So if you're watching them on Instagram and thinking like, I should do that too, ask yourself if wellness is your job. (laughs) And if it's not, you don't have to do it that way. I hear you. And I think people might think, you know, that wellness is my job and it sort of is, but I don't even think that that's true for those of us who are like in the wellness space or in the fitness space, you know? Yeah. And I, so I don't even view necessarily as a wellness influencer. I think that there's definitely a category of wellness entertain entertainment where people create a lot of content and that is their job. So it it looks like a full-time commitment 
to be well. Mm -hmm. And you just have to be aware that that's one way, but that doesn't have to be your way. Right. And and don't build a castle you don't want to live in. You know, make it the way that you that brings you joy and that is sustainable. Yes. Yes. Joy, sustainability, something realistic and, you know, echoing just your statement around there's more than one way to do it. Like anytime I feel really stuck or I feel anxious or nervous about something, maybe it's a project, maybe it's, you know, whatever, it could be a bunch of different things. It's usually because my attention has narrowed and completely latched on to this idea of having to do something only this one way. And that belief in itself causes so much suffering. So you always are someone in my life who helps me to soften the lens and remember anytime I think there's just one way or two ways, there's probably 22,000 ways. Yes. So good. And that's another question I urge people to ask all the time. Like, are these the only two options? And when you say it that way, you're usually like, well, maybe not. <laughs> there are more than in the, for example, morning routines have been so popular the last few years. And a lot of them are presented as like an hour commitment. And if that works for you, great. But is, is that the way you want to do it? Because there are more options. Like you could do it for a minute or you could do it in the afternoon. You know, you don't even have to do it in the morning. I have a theory, and I don't know if this is true because obviously I haven't surveyed everybody, but I have a, this theory that even the people who are online exercising all the time on the cover of magazines for having a hot body or being a famous teacher or like whatever it is, like I have this theory that it is really hard for them to keep up with the ideas that other people have of them too. Mm. I'm I'm sure, Kate. I mean, we know some of those people. So don't build a castle you don't want to live in, right? Like it's you it has to work for you. It has to be it has to be around what you value and what feels good to you and just permission to customize everything. Which means disappointing other people sometimes, or yeah. it means breaking the rules, which like mm -hmm. whatever rules are there anyway, and, you know, not sticking to the quote unquote normal way that things are done. Yeah. And I, I like to say to switch from should to good. And if you, if you hear that word come up for yourself, should, it's a really good um, flag to ask yourself, like, according to who? <laughs> so I should be doing this. I should be doing that. According to who and why do you think that? And maybe it is what you need to do. Um, but instead of thinking about what you should be doing, maybe reframe that as like, what is good? What is the, what is good to me? What is my value? What is, how does this align with what I want for my life and what I want for the world and what I want for the community? And you might end up with a different answer. So Robin, with the flipping the should to good, is that also what you mean when you say flipping the script? Because there's a big part of your book about that, right? Yeah, it is. It's about, I mean, flipping the script is really flipping the script on the whole thing. Everything that we've been taught about wellness recently is maybe reframing. So reframing around your thought patterns, reframing around how much time things need to take and reframing around why we're doing them in the first place. And sort of back to the beginning of our conversation, Kate, is what defining what success means for you. Um, so when you flip the script, it's really about kind of reframing all of these things in a way that um, is simple and joyful and, and customized to your life. So you guys, everything that Robin is saying, like, it's radical. I think it's, it's totally, it's totally radical. It's different yeah. than what we've been conditioned to believe. And she outlines a lot of this stuff in her book, um, which is available for pre-order. Robin, can it you is. tell us when the book is coming out? It's coming out September 1st, 2020. It is available for pre-order um anywhere books are sold US and Canada so 
um, Indies, um, Powell's, Amazon, all of those places. And in we're working on international availability. We have it in the Spanish-speaking markets and Russia right now. Hopefully more to come. But yeah, Kate, what you said about it being radical, I don't think I knew how radical it was for a long time because it, to me, it's so logical. It's like, of course it should be this way. And it took me a really long time to realize just how counter it was. And so, you know, I just invite your community to like join me in this mission to redefine what it means to be healthy or really just reclaim it. Because it's not what it, it's always been what it was, but that's, it's always been here. We just got off, we got away from it in a big way. And I still have, like I said, on those, on those hard days, I still wonder if there's space yet for a book like this. Um, But I also have faith that people will you know, I know there's a lot of people hungry for something else. So uh, that's what I hope. There is so much space for this book. I was lucky enough to get my hands on an advanced copy and I haven't read the whole thing yet, but it is incredible. And I just have to say your marriage vows to Andrew, like, are so true. Can like, maybe that's a, maybe that's a good teaser for us but what do you remember what you wrote about your marriage vows? Something about feeling yeah, good. I do. So simple. Yeah. So I've been married. Oh gosh. How long have I been married? That's unfortunate that I don't remember. 17 years, I think. It, yeah. Something like that. I was 22. So, uh, and I got married in 2002. So, so 18 years this summer. Anyway. So I've been married a long time, and when we got married, I we wrote our own vows, and I actually asked my dad to give us some of the vows he had written for my mom when they're married like over 40 years. So the line was, I, I have only one life, and it is only so long, and I hope to spend it, and I choose to spend it with you. That was the vow. And I ended the book with that vow for you and kind of dedicating it to you listeners that you will have only one life and it's only so long. And I hope you choose it in the pursuit of feeling good, not, not like instant gratification, feeling good, but in this felt sense of what is good. And when you do that, it will ripple out. Like it will make change for you, but it will also make change for everybody. Because when we're whole, we can do amazing things, right? And when we're broken, we do some pretty awful things. So that was kind of how I ended the book. Mm, So beautiful, Robin, and so sincere. And you and I talk about this a lot because it's not about having a hot body or being really cool or being the smartest person in the room. You know, all of these things kind of come and go. And really at the core, it's just like living a life aligned with your values and showing up present and trying your best. So that's such a beautiful wish for everybody to end the book. It is. And, and, one thing we didn't, as we wrap up, one thing we didn't touch on that I do want to come back to, especially right now with what's happening, it's not new, but the recent um, spotlight on just egregious racism in America, the idea of self-compassion can sometimes get misconstrued as like, just focus on self. And I do want people to know, too, that the research on self-compassion is when you can be kind for yourself, you have the strength and the compassion to be an active change in your community. And so it doesn't mean putting your head in the sand and acting like nothing is going on in the world, whether it's the climate right now in the United States or whether it's the pandemic. You're not ignoring what's happening but by caring for yourself deeply, you're able to stand up and do the things that are important to you. Um, so I try to end that as well with the book. 
that's such a key, key differentiation point because again, we've been fed to, we've been led to believe that it's all about just like feeling good and like being joyful and blissed out. Mm. But like a huge part of self-compassion is our ability to connect with ourselves so we can connect with each other. So we can see ourselves in each other. Yeah. And so that we have the resilience to, to do and be the things that we want to do and be and the hard things, right? The challenging things. Um, so that was important for me to end the book that way as well, because I think like this idea of feeling good, it can really go very quickly into the good vibes only world. And that's not where I'm coming from at all. I'm really, it's not about feeling good all the time or just look, thinking about yourself and ignoring the world's problems. It's really about being whole and caring for yourself in such a way that you are able then to, it resonates out and self-compassion has been shown in the research to resonate literally to another person. Mm. Well, one of my the things that I learned from my teacher, she did research at Duke when she was in her early 20s, and they would look at people's facial expressions as they talked. And just in studying how people's faces were responding, not the words that they were saying, but looking at how their faces were taking shape, they could indicate how much anger and stress they were experiencing and how that had an impact on their heart health, mm-hmm. which maybe this feels like I'm just randomly bringing something in out of left field, but it totally came to mind. And it's not saying that like anger and feelings of dis-ease are bad, but like when we, when we bottle that up, when we're, when we're unable to have that compassion for ourselves for other people like it really causes harm to our physical bodies in a very real way it really does it really does and if we want to see change the kind of change we want to see one of the really important steps is self-compassion it just is because if we can't if we cannot have that sense for ourselves it's very difficult to have it for people who we don't understand or who we don't relate to. Um, so, you know, that's a whole other rabbit trail, but I just think it's important to mention that it's not, there's like a whole category of wellness that is ignoring this conversation. And I want to make sure that we know that it's, that's not what this is about. Nope. No spiritual bypassing happening here. <laughs> well, we're doing our best to not, to avoid that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Robin, thank you so much. One last question for you. How does fierce love move through you? How does it move through me? Like physically? I don't know. You can like part of the point of the question is to be like a little ambiguous. Okay. (laughs) So I I end my podcast with the question similar kind of like out of left field question. And (laughs) I, I no one's ever turned it back on me yet. But I am the worst person. I do that to other people. But then if you ask me a question, I'll like overanalyze it and pick it apart for (laughs) five minutes. Um, Well, what comes up for me when you say how does fierce love move through me is just the feeling of fierce love when I'm with my family and my daughter and that uh, sense of wholeness and sense of purpose. comes when you're in that present moment in 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 your truth. Mm. Well, you're creating the work you're doing now is certainly laying the foundation for L, your daughter, um for listeners who aren't familiar with Robin, L's a mini Robin Downs. But yeah, you're laying that foundation for her to have a better relationship to her body, to her peers, Um, and to this idea of what it means to actually be healthy. So thank you for the work you do. I absolutely love you. How can people find you? Well, Kate Hurley, I love you too. And people can find me at Real Food Whole Life on Instagram, realfoodwholelife.com. 
is my website. And then the Feel Good Effect podcast. So you can go on over there and hit subscribe right now. Fresh new episodes every week. Uh, we have one with Kate, a recent one with Kate. You want to listen to that. And then the the book is available for pre-order anywhere books are sold. We have some really awesome pre-order bonuses coming. So if you do purchase that, you'll be able to get those. And am I forgetting anything? Oh, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to make an announcement. I do have a TikTok account. No. Oh my gosh. Okay, I need to meet you on TikTok. No one knows this except for you guys. It has none videos. But you can follow me for none videos. Um but TikTok's a pretty toxic place and I really felt like it's a um but I also feel like it's what's not it really is becoming more of a legitimate platform and I feel like um I've never seen so much diet culture in my life. So it felt like a place where my message might be needed. So uh, you can come hang out with my nun videos and you can challenge my perfectionism and see if I can start getting through this block I've been having about creating a video and start posting over there as well. I'm here for it, Robin. We'll see you on TikTok. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kate. That was Robin Downs, researcher, author, and podcast host. Our episode today was brought to you by the Kate app and website, my online training platform that delivers classes that combine movement with meditation to help you take care of your body, mind, and heart. Until next week, here's to showing up fully present here now.